Yeah, hi, Mr. Stern. Thank Andy, you. Andy, Andy, Andy. Mr. Stern's my dad still. <laughs> Not much longer. I, I'm Jared, and you don't need a last okay. name. Um, I'm at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and Harvard Business School. Um, at the latter, I tend to be sort of the flannel-wearing hippie. Um, who, you know, you says some things longer like, hair. I'll, I'll show you my old pictures. Exactly, okay. yeah. <laughs> and, and I tend to say things like, you know, maybe unions aren't so bad, they uh -huh. give us the weekend. Uh -huh. um, not generally received so well sure. among many of my right. classmates. I guess what I'd love to know is, um, do you have some advice for me um, and for the handful of us who are at business school here um, in either in what would you like to see MBAs coming out of business school thinking about unions, um, and potentially what, what can we do in the time we have left to a couple little things to actually help um, bridge the relationship between man management yeah. and unions? You know, I would start by saying that you know, we just need to start with what the function of unions, what it does economically, forgetting ideology and forgetting many of the bad things it, do, it does that actually work, which it is a way to distribute wealth. And I think, you know, the challenge for, you know, I, I guess I mean tape, so I might as well just say it again anyway. You know, the union movement has a long history of being male, pale, and stale. Um, and I, I plead guilty to at least one. You know, I hope the other two I've tried to overcome, but uh, uh, so, and, you know, we are in the 21st century and we haven't quite realized it. Just like many major churches, many major nonprofits, you know, realize the world changes and as I say, you either change and make history or you stick to the status quo and usually you become history. So for me, it's one is to try to first take the ideology out of the question and the sort of the bad habits of many of my colleagues out of the question and, you know, and begin to talk about, you know, how are we going to distribute wealth in this country and what role our unions, but what really would be helpful is to try to figure out a, a different role for unions, you know, than kind of the worksite by worksite, thick contract, rule-based kind of work that we do sometimes, and try to figure out how to incentivize, whether it's ESOPs, whether it's training, you know, whether it's uh, profit sharing, you know, that doesn't just go to the top five percent of the workforce, to try to find a way that the gift of this country, which was it rewarded hard work and it built the greatest middle class in the world, continues to be true. And so, you know, I don't think this is really a debate about unions to start with. I would say it's really a debate about how do we create America's, re retain America's gift, which is the middle, greatest middle class in the world, which is shrinking, you know, faster than, um, than most people's 401ks are shrinking uh, every single day. And then, you know, how do we create a public policy that incentivizes? You know, we, we know when we incentivize investing in real estate, all of a sudden we have a real estate boom. You know, wouldn't it be nice to create laws where we, you know, incentivized employee ownership when we, you know, and, and that unions played some kind of role in that, some kind of role in providing benefits because employer-based health care and employer-based pensions are going to disappear in your lifetime because employers are are just churning way too much because of creative destruction that occurs at a moment like this and you're living through an economic revolution. So I think it's trying not to fight the good and bad of unions because there's plenty of both and there's plenty of good history and there's plenty of bad history. It's really asking the question of, you know, how do we create an America where people that work hard can own a home, raise their family, retire with dignity, you know, and what role should unions play in that? And, and if they're not the ones, what is the way? Because we will not, should not become a third world country. Um, hi again. Hi. Um, ben from NYU, male, pale, not stale. Um, 
proud to say it. <laughs> so I have a question for you. Two themes have been bouncing around here the last couple of days. One is really focused on the role of the private sector mm -hmm. in addressing social problems. That's been a theme of social entrepreneurship. Um, another has been the role of the state in these problems as well. We haven't talked that much at all about the role of the social sector in addressing some business problems. For example, unionization, organizing, kind of base of the pyramid, ground up strategies. You've spent your career looking at these issues. In terms of social entrepreneurship, in terms of how we can effectively bring all of our best practices, both from the business side and the social side, to bear on some problems, what role do you think coming together, organizing, collective action has in addressing some of the problems in capitalism, in the economy? Um, it's way over my head, but I'll give it a shot. Uh, I'd say, you know, first of all, it's enormously important to appreciate, which you all do, that uh, Policy is really important, but the world also works because of politics, you know. And you know, if this running a country, maybe in China, is actually much more policy driven. I, I think I always like to say it's really interesting that eight of the eleven Politburo members in China are engineers, you know. Probably eight of every ten uh, congressmen are lawyers, and maybe that's a up for up for engineers and down for lawyers kind of thing because pl planning matters, politics matters, you know, and so. To me, the question is, as I think we saw in the healthcare discussion, is, you know, how do you build a comprehensive, you know, set of engagements between all the different sectors to make change? So part of the untold story of healthcare, partially told story of healthcare, is that people like our union and Walmart and Intel and GE and Howard Baker is a Republican and John Podesta is a Democrat. The Business Roundtable, the NFIB, ARP, and ourselves created a variety of coalitions all of which tried to create the space for the politicians, particularly the Democratic politicians, to feel like they could act without being anti-business, you know, without act without being anti-seniors or anti-union, because the, the political environment was so toxic from 1994 when Hillary and Bill, you know, when Harry and Louise beat Bill and Hillary, uh, that, you know, we tried to create the environment that allowed a certain kinds of engagement to act politically, you know, and. So to me, you know, this is, you know, Newt Gingrich is my favorite uh, planner because he always says to me, plan back from victory, not from the present forward. And so I think the real challenge we all have is when we're trying to solve a problem is to try to figure out what is the problem we're trying to solve, what is victory, and then how do we put those different forces together in different combinations in every problem to try to get something done. So whether it's how do we influence the private sector's behavior between government and uh, nonprofits and the, or how does, you know, government, I mean, how to, you know, the, the nonprofit sector like us and business try to affect government. You know, I think it's just a, a strategic planning exercise that has no, um, you know, regular, you know, template or, or it's not a science, it's an art. And it has a lot to do with politics. And I spend a number of my uh, times a year, I go to McKinsey meetings, and they sort of introduce me as, I, I favor what the idea, what it is, it's, it's like the disruptor. Like, you're going to have this great business plan, and someone like this guy or an environmentalist is going to show up, and everything's going to change. Because you, you know, it's like Jen will say, that my battle plan's good until I meet the enemy. Um, so to me, the, you know, the constant organizing of people, ideas, resources into a plan that is 
you know, planning back from victory and constantly responding to what the environment you say is really important. And, you know, planning does matter and engaging different forces. I spent today, I had a fun day. I'm in the President's Fiscal Commission. I'm one of his uh, six appointees uh, to try to balance the budget deficit. So if any of you got an MBA, I could, like, need some help afterwards because <laughs> I have a hard time on my online banking. So, uh, <laughs> So I was with Paul Ryan, who has a little bit different point of view, I thought, than me. And he came in and thought it was really cute that I was going to come in, because he thinks I'm a socialist, and I think he's a right-wing nut. He's, he's wrong, and uh, I'm right. But, uh, <laughs> but my goal was to try to find something to engage him in, that if we, this fiscal commission is going to make any sense, he and I need to do something that shows that people want to solve this problem. right? And we have to find a space. So we talked about, okay, are you for your marks? No, I'm not for your marks. Good, maybe we should both write a letter to the commission and say, we think, you know, are you for a consumption tax, a VAT tax, a national sales tax? You know, I am too. So maybe we should do something there. Because I, my goal, my strategy in this engagement to try to figure out how do we balance our budget, preserve Social Security, deal with the overall expenditures, is to try to, at my first phase is to try to create a different discussion than normally happens so that you may actually solve the problem. And as I said to him, if not, I have to learn that stuff about I yield five minutes to the gentleman from uh, Wisconsin or something, which I don't really get. So to me, strategy matters, organizing matters, and, and sort of thinking back from victory matters. Hi. Oh, sorry. Go I ahead. Like... Someone's in charge here. Good. <laughs> um, my name is Madeline. I'm at NYU. Um, so in terms of looking forward and looking at new strategies for organizing, uh, my background is I, in New York, I, I have worked with Domestic Workers United, which is a, a worker center in New York. Know exactly uh, who they are. Oh, great. So yeah, so for everyone who doesn't, they, they organize nannies, housekeepers, and home care workers, like the one that we just saw in the video, 99% immigrant women of color. Um, so their model is quite different from a traditional union model where they, they can't collect member dues, they can't be a collective bargaining agent, but they just go completely on uh, worker empowerment and education. And they also have a, a legislative strategy in New York State. So my question is, what are, are there innovative models like those worker centers that the SEIU is looking at and, and into incorporating it well, into I, the I should, I'm glad you asked that question. I could have planted that question, I wish. Uh, you know, if you believe, like we do, that innovation occurs at the fringes, not in the center of most organizations, because most organizations are just too uh, used to doing what they're doing, and innovation is hard to drive from, then you have to force yourself to create innovation. And so we've just set aside uh, some number of millions of dollars to go seek out people who are trying to do innovative things. And I was actually, I would like to do something, but people in my union think I'm just, this is way too over the top for even them. And they've tolerated a lot of my over the top ideas, which was, I don't know if any of you know about the X Prize, but the X Prize is offered to people who accomplish something, right? It, you don't get it for doing it, you get it for accomplishing. So we were going to, create an X Prize, offer $10 million to anyone who can figure out how to organize 25,000 workers into a self-sustaining organization, you know, for more than two years in a row, you know, to try to find a different way to innovate, you know, and let the domestic workers, and would be one model, and the other model, we're going to try to look at people like the domestic workers to bring them in and see if we can give them resources and stay out of their way 
because too many, you know, this is what I like about Catherine, too many philanthropists, you know, spend their time, you know, telling everybody what to do as opposed to creating opportunities for lots of people to do lots of different things. Um, and then, you know, then there's no innovation because then they're just doing what the Ford Foundation told them to do, although the Ford Foundation has really come a long way too, so uh, in terms of trying to find innovation. So, yeah, we are desperately looking for trying to change the union from a collective bargaining model to more sort of a social movement that deals with things like can we pass health care reform, immigration reform, you know, big changes that affect all kinds of people's lives, and can we find the innovators on organizing and try to give them the uh, resources to scale up what they're doing. And if they can, then can we somehow uh, engage it in our union in a way that could take it, you know, using our infrastructure and political relationships much broader than they could do on their own. And so we're going to try to see if we can find a way to innovate. And the reason I know the group is they are one of the models that we're going to eventually ask to come in and talk to us about, you know, what they're doing and can they imagine doing it bigger, better, and what we could do to help. Okay. Hi, Sarah Dillard. I'm a joint degree student at the Kennedy School and Harvard Business School. Um, and I spent several years working in education reform. And I wanted to ask you, um, so it, working in education, it often, particularly from the reform side, it often feels like um, unions are protecting adults at the expense of children. And I just wanted to get any kind of observations or reflections or thoughts you had on what the role of unionization was in the education field going forward and how they could become a more progressive force? So uh, two things. I mean, one is I think we need to distinguish, I always like to distinguish between, generally speaking, urban education and other education, because I don't think we have it. We have a generalized problem. If you want to look in one way, we have a disaster in urban education. and so. So it's like I like to say, when there's, there's not a nurse shortage in America, because we represent lots of nurses, there's a nurse shortage in hospitals in America, and it's really acute and really bad, and we just have to solve the right problem. So, you know, for most urban education, things are terrible. Uh, unions have been, you know, protective of the adults, as have school boards, as have principals, not necessarily the kids. I think there's a revolution, if not an evolution of some sort going on. If you read Sandy Feldman, Sandy Feldman, Randy Weingarten's speech that she gave at the National Press Club on December, you would be amazed at what she talked about, about she hired Ken Feinberg to develop a new evaluation system um, so that bad teachers can get fired and not sit around as they do supposedly in New York City in a padded room, you know, waiting to get reassigned. You know, she talked about evaluate, uh, you know, about curriculum development, about evaluations based on outcomes and not just based on process and, and lots of other things. So I think we have a union leader who is trying to get to a different place and I keep telling all the reformers, you know, when people who stand in the way of change are starting to change, you should encourage them, not beat the hell out of them because they haven't changed enough. because. You haven't been able to make the changes you want, even where they're not unions, because for all they want to say about unions, there are no effective teachers union in the workplace in uh, <coughs> Alabama, Georgia, Texas, New Mexico, and many other, Oklahoma, other southern states. And without unions, they're not doing so great. So we can kick around unions all we want. It's a convenient excuse. And there are plenty of things like not allowing the best teachers to go to the worst schools that should be, and bad teachers should be fired, and all of those things. But it's a little bit too easy. The, the thing I worry about the educational reform movement is it's, is that the outcomes seem to have plateaued, in my humble opinion. If you take New York City and look at what Joel Klein has done, there was a, you know, a tremendous 
kind of growth in, in uh, achievement and results over a short period of time. I almost feel like, and I know him very well, he better get out of town in the next year or two. You know, it's kind of like a guy who, who's, who gets a lot of returns in his company at the early stages and can't sustain the growth over time. So, you know, I think the teachers unions, you know, have to change. You know, I think one of them is beginning to change. You know, I think, though, it's a way too convenient to kick them around, and I think we're about to get to a moment where what we're going to, I believe, this is my, I wrote a book, one of the things I wrote in the books, most of them were wrong, this one's going to be right, <laughs> I'm sure this time, uh, that uh, the, in, the, the uh, integration of technology into education will be the productivity driver that drives this further. There's only so much a single teacher in a single classroom can do to get increased performance and that after that something fundamentally different has to happen and we are totally underutilizing technology and it, which can individualize behavior and allow teachers to play different roles, allow the greatest lecturers in the world to appear on a screen you know, just like this and, and the greatest curriculum in the world to be available to everybody. Uh, so teachers unions need to improve. We need to be careful that we don't uh, overstate, you know, temporary achievement as long-term achievement. And I think we're going to find ourselves having to figure out how to integrate technology at big time, not little time. Not every kid gets a computer so they can take it home, but, you know, that it really is a, a major way that people can learn on their own speed, get the kind of material like my son who learns very differently than other kids, you know, and then at the same time allows teachers to play a much more supportive, encouraging, mentoring role and not stand in front of a classroom all the time trying to give lectures. So I guess that's it. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.